0: to dynamics, and, and we, you know, we recognize that. There's no way we can address it all this morning. Um, but when, when there are things that happen that are for the good of humanity and for the good of people, uh, I think it's right and, and appropriate for us to, to to thank God and to celebrate that. So if you'll take a moment, let's, uh, let's just pray together. God, we lay before you the recognition that our world is complicated and uh, that there's a... Uh, I look in the rearview mirror uh, of my life and I recognize... Uh, the nature of the decisions and the way i 've used my time and my money and, and my own, just my own life god it 's got so much complexity and there 's uh, things that are uh, that i 'm thankful for and then there 's things that are so just so contrary to the way that you would have uh, called me to live uh, and God, I think that we can all in this room recognize that' that 's the journey that 's the journey of, of life uh, on this earth. And when we look at our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, God, they're, 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 they're uh, in the same world. They're, they're living in the same broken world. Uh, so God, would you give us hearts of compassion for each other? God, would you actually give us hearts of compassion towards our own selves, a uh, recognition that yet you, are, you, are, you are incredibly patient, uh, and yet you are inviting us into what you call the good life? Uh, so God, we thank you for this good news coming from England, uh, for the protection of children, uh, and God, we, we pray for that same protection to, to, uh, to come to fruition uh, here in our own culture. God, we lay before you all the other complicated dynamics of this month and uh, for our, all, of our, all of our neighbors. And uh, we ask for your wisdom uh, every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, if you've been around, you know that we are in a series uh, going through the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Um, And we've got our way we made our way all the way to chapter five. Uh, And so today, um, uh, last week, we spent a little time giving a, a general idea of what is this chapters five, six and seven are something called the Sermon on the Mount. And like what's going on with that sermon, those those kind of three chapters. And uh, talked about that a little bit last week, but then said, what, what are these first 12 verses? What, 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 is, what is Jesus doing? Because in the whole sermon, Jesus is giving us a vision, a pitch of what life with him looks like. And so his Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, a lot of people refer to as his greatest sermon. Um, it's like, what does what life with Jesus look like? Uh, and these first 12 verses um, are, are something unique, and maybe your Bible has subtitles, and before verse 2, it might have the subtitle, The Beatitudes, and so we're going to take our time going through them, and today we're going to deal with the very first beatitude, which is uh, the poor uh, in, in spirit. So let me let me bring us back up to speed if you weren't here last week or maybe uh, you're, you're visiting from out of town, but I just want to talk about the Beatitudes themselves for, for for a minute. We did a little bit of this last week, uh, but it'll be shorter, shorter this week. So the word Beatitude is not a word that kind of made it into our current cultural moment. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said the word Beatitude outside of reading Matthew chapter 5. And my, my guess is uh, that many of you are in the same boat, that either you've never read Matthew 5 and you've Never said the word beatitude, or you've said the word beatitude, but it's because you are reading Matthew chapter five. Um, And and so where where does this come from? You know, in a sense, what is a beatitude? Well, a beatitude, the the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which is translating a Greek word makarios. Makarios is the Greek word, and the New Testament was was written in the Greek language. So along the way, the uh, it was translated into Latin. And when it was translated into Latin, the word that's used there at the beginning of those verses, if you look in your Bible, beginning of verse 3, it says blessed. That's the Greek word makarios, which was translated into Latin, which was beatus, and then it was translated into English as blessed. So you can see the Latin part is where we got beatitude. That kind of hung around. But when the translations moved into new languages, uh, the English landed on the word blessed. Uh, last week we we tried to, to 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 flesh out a little bit of like what are these quote unquote blessings, uh, what what is a beatitude, and and there are three there are three traditional options. One is that this idea of being blessed is is God's favor. It's like divine blessing. It's like God acting upon you of no no no. It's just like God pours it out on you, and it's just like grace. Uh, God, God's favor, divine blessing. Second option is that it's future. It, it's kingdom. It's, it's like this idea, the reversal of, of things, that these aren't really for now. This is kind of the circle I grew up in a little bit, where these aren't really for now. They're much more talking about how the kingdom, like, like kind of this future reversal of things, that in the end, it's all going to get reversed when, when, when we are in the eternal kingdom. Uh, the third one then would be wisdom. Uh, wisdom. This idea of kind of virtue or ethical statements, uh, statements of what is the good life. Um, and so Jesus, when he uses makarios or um, uh, makarisms, as, as some call them, they, they seem to be best understood as like primarily number three, but with a little mix of number two in there. And so there's this sense in which on, uh, on the one hand, they are virtue statements, they are ethical statements, they're wisdom statements on navigating this world. Jesus is telling us, this is the good life. And so one commentator that we've, one New Testament theologian that I've been learning a lot from, his name's Jonathan Pennington, he he translates this flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. And really leaning into that third category. But there is absolutely the second component mixed in there. This idea that there's a future kingdom that's coming. Because if you remember back in chapter 4, when Jesus starts starts to communicate to people what he's about, this is what he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives us this indication throughout this gospel that he's that king. So there's a kingdom that's coming and he's the king of that kingdom. And so this number two, this this idea that as Jesus brings his kingdom to bear, the rules are going to shift and change. And the way things work are going to shift and change. There's a new king in town. And so these are wisdom statements. These really are invitations. This is what Jesus is telling us is the good life, but with an eye towards the kingdom that, that he is bringing. So they're not divine blessings that are bestowed upon you. Uh, they're not even really commands. Uh, one writer put it this way. They are congratulatory descriptions of people who are in a state of well-being. So Jesus is looking at these people, and he's saying, good, good on you. That's it. What, that's, that's the life right there. That's the flourishing life. So it's, it's almost like Jesus would be walking through a field, and he would see a tree that has bright green leaves and luscious, like, you know, juicy fruit. And he'd look at that tree, and he'd be like, that's it. That's a flourishing tree. That's it. That, that's the sense of what Jesus is doing in these first verses of, of Matthew chapter 5, these macarisms or uh, these, these beatitudes. So this is actually, uh, this idea is actually, it's not, um, it might feel like it's not in line with the rest of the Bible, but it actually is quite in line with much of what the Bible is asking us to consider. Uh, th- there's a quote on the screen behind me from uh, Eugene Peterson. He, he translated the, the, trans- the translation, the message, but he also wrote a number of books. And one of the books that he wrote is titled Eat This Book. And it's actually him inviting us into how it is that we should digest the Bible. And this is what he says. Scripture as a text does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite. Basically saying, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made, God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. And so, so much of what God is doing on the pages of the Bible is actually saying to us, yes, there's doctrinal truths. Y- yes, there are statements with periods at the end. There are things that are true of God and true of us and true of the world. But the overwhelming sense of the Bible is that it's a story. And as we live into the story, we begin to find our place in the story. And then the way we live makes all the sense in the world because that's where we're at in the story. That's who we are in the story. Our, our church over the years has found a lot of value in trying to lean into identity. And, and our logo, our church logo has a fingerprint, a thumbprint right in the middle of it. And that, that's an intention to, 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 to try to invite us to recognize God has something to say about who we are. And the more we realize who we are, then how we live is almost like a byproduct of that. Instead of sitting around and just saying, you know, like, I got to achieve this or I got to think this, there's actually a sense in which we're invited into a story that, that shapes our life. And that's part of what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the Beatitudes present us with someone who is happy and whole, someone who is flourishing. And yeah, they feel upside down, but that's part of the beauty of this. Jesus is telling us, I got something to tell you. You want to know what the good life looks like? Let me tell you, it's going to be a little bit of a shocker. It's going to be a little bit of a stunner. It's almost like, again, Jesus is walking through this, this field, and he sees a tree and says, that tree, that's the flourishing tree. That's the one. That's what it is. And so Jesus, in these, 12, uh, these, 10 state, these nine statements, he, uh, he actually is pointing to flourishing trees, flourishing people. He says, this is, this is where it's at. You know, if you want happiness in this world, this beautiful but broken world, this is what it looks like. Now, happiness, <laughs> wanting happiness in this world. Talked about that a little bit last week. Um, but man, we are all seeking happiness. And you might want to say, ah, that's, you know, that's our current culture, marketing, you know, uh, yeah, immediate you know, gratification. Well, it's, it's been around for a long time. And you could find passages in the Bible that indicate that this pursuit of happiness uh, dominates the lives of, of human beings. Uh, but back in the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, uh, a, f- a French philosopher, that this, this is what he said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but, these, uh, but to this object, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. He's obviously adding a scandalous comment at the end to say, that, that too, even that is a pursuit of happiness. They've come to the conclusion that that's the road. And so there's this invitation or this recognition that the seeking of happiness, it's not just in our current cultural moment, though it is here. It's been around for a really long time. You know, advertising, vacation, sex, food, money. People are using all kinds of things, but they are looking for happiness. Everybody's trying. Throughout the course of history, every great teacher offers a pathway, and this is Jesus's. That's part of what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what the flourishing life is. I'm going to point it out. I'm going to show it to you. So this is Jesus' way, uh, let's, let's listen up. Now this first, this first beatitude, the poor in spirit, it's Matthew chapter five, It starts right off, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, um, you know, some commentators, as they wrestle with these texts, they, they kind of ask the question of like, how could this be misunderstood? And one of the ways that it actually has been misunderstood over the course of church history is that this could actually be saying, uh, th- talking about somebody who has a bad spirit, somebody who is poor-spirited. Blessed are the poor-spirited. And that, that is not at all what Jesus is intending to say. The, the word for poor here means utterly destitute. It means beggarly. It has the sense of intensity or intense poverty. So what does Jesus mean when he says poor in spirit? not poor-spirited, not mean. What, what he means includes the material poor, the, the, those who are materially poor, those who literally do not have resources, do, do not have money. Uh, if you know the heart of Jesus, then you know that Jesus has a heart for the materially poor. Jesus cares deeply about the materially poor. If you go back to the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament often has an eye Towards the poor, it actually has laws in place about how it is that you actually glean the wheat from your field. How do you collect the wheat from your field? There are laws that say you have to leave portions of your field uh, uh, that you don't that you don't gather, that you don't reap, so that those who don't have any can come and get some for free. And so there's this eye towards the poor for the people of God throughout the Bible. There's a constant call to have an eye towards the poor, and Jesus has an eye towards the poor. And so there's a a sense here where Jesus is talking about the poor in spirit, or when he says poor in spirit, he's talking about the materially poor. But that also is contrasted with, with money. That when Jesus is talking about this idea of poverty, which includes material poverty, It's important to to contrast that with how the Bible thinks about riches. You know, when when the Bible talks about riches, it it often thinks about riches not as good and bad. It doesn't treat riches as good or bad. It It treats riches as powerful, as a significant resource. And so, like any powerful resource, riches can be potentially dangerous. Riches can trick you into thinking that you are self-sufficient. Poverty can force you to own your lack of self-sufficiency. Poverty can force you to ask for help. Riches can create an environment where we actually think we can solve it ourselves. We're often in danger of not realizing the barrier that wealth can be. But Jesus actually said that it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And and Jesus is is using a a, a kind of a a, a hyperbolic statement in some ways, but he's suggesting that riches do create a barrier, a a hurdle, material riches create a barrier that can cause people to, to be more blind than they realize. And material poverty can actually pull those blinders off and help to see the reality of the situation. Riches can also create an environment where there's somewhat of an exclusivity, that there's a a little bit of a desire to go to to restaurants that only they can go to, to go to resorts that only they can go to. Uh, An example, uh, maybe you are uh, familiar with Twitter and the social social media platform Twitter, and uh, Elon Musk recently bought that, uh, toy for $44 billion. Uh, and so, you know, it's nice to have a $44 billion toy um, to, to, to play with. Um, but one of, one of Elon Musk's ideas was if you are on Twitter, you can become like a verified or an authorized person on Twitter by getting a blue check. And so uh, other platforms have other things, but on Twitter, you get, a, you get a blue check. And in the past, the blue check cost nothing. But... To get the blue check, you had to be somebody. You had to have a certain number of followers. You had to have a certain profile in the public world. You needed to be a significant journalist or a significant athlete or a significant movie star or a significant player in, in the business world. Like you, 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 needed to, you needed to earn that little sucker. Like it, it's like you, you had position in the world and then Twitter granted you a blue check a friend of mine has like 13,000 Twitter followers and he still cannot get verified through Twitter. He couldn't get his blue check and tried and tried. He's published books. He's done all kinds of things. He couldn't, couldn't get his blue check. Well, Elon Musk comes in and says, we're, we're, we're bleeding out money. We, we need to figure out a funding model. So he comes up with the idea that the blue check is gonna cost $8 a month and you can have a blue check. Well, there is just this massive rejection of this idea, this dust-up. All the blue check people, okay, not everyone, almost all the blue check people hate this idea. And they're getting on Twitter and they're making all their declarations that I won't pay $8 a month, I'm leaving this platform, blah, 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 all all this stuff. And you immediately realize that the problem is not $8 a month it's not $72 a year. It's that they got a blue check exclusively. That blue check says something about me that nobody else can have or only the select few. Now Matt Heron can buy a blue check? Are you kidding me? They weren't for it at all. They weren't for it uh, at, at all. Can you see how that mentality, and this is not true of every rich person, I'm not suggesting that at all, but can you see how that mentality might be a problem for an offer from Jesus that is available to any and all? If there's just the slightest sense of exclusivity that you think you deserve better than everybody else, that you think you've earned a special spot, and then here comes this message of Jesus, and it's like he opens wide his doors he opens wide his arms. The gospel is for all people. You see, riches can blind us in subtle ways like that. And poverty, material poverty, not only does Jesus have a heart for the materially poor, but, the, the, but uh, material poverty can actually help tear some of the blinders off. So Jesus does include the materially poor when he says poor in spirit. But it's not primarily the materially poor. It's primarily the the spiritually poor. You're just using the, 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 uh, the, the grid we just used or the spectrum we just used of uh, material riches and material poverty. Look, the rich can see their spiritual poverty and the poor could miss their spiritual poverty. Like you, you probably know people in both categories and what Jesus is talking about is something deeper than your bank account. Jesus has an eye towards the material poor. He loves the materially poor in a unique way, but what he's talking about here is underneath that. He's saying there's something going on in your spirit, in your spirit, in in your soul. He's talking about a poverty of your spiritual life, of your internal life. Both the materially rich and the materially poor need to see their spiritual poverty. Why? Because the Bible actually says that we are all spiritually poor that that's actually the condition of everybody. And it's so easy to miss it. There's one of, Jesus, one of my favorite parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, where in the temple there are two people praying. There's a Pharisee, and they're praying, and they are praying cocky. They are praying, God, I'm so thankful that you made me who I am that I am so good at what I do and that I tithe everything and I'm not like sinners and I'm not like the greedy and I'm just, I'm I'm so great. Like you did such a good job picking me out. And there's another one in the temple, a tax collector, a sinner, and he won't even lift his head to heaven. And he cries out and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Be merciful on me, God, a sinner. Now, you know what was true culturally of both of those groups of people? both a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're both rich. They're both rich. And one is seeing their spiritual poverty and one is missing their spiritual poverty. But Jesus right here starts off the Beatitudes by saying, let me point out the flourishing. Over there, the flourishing is the poor in spirit. The flourishing is the one who recognizes their spiritual poverty He's starting right off with an affirmation that the way of flourishing involves this recognition, that the deepest problems of your life, that the deepest problems of this world are bigger than you. You can't fix them, not the real problems, and you're able to see the poverty of your internal life. That's what Jesus says is the flourishing life. I, uh, for, for Christmas, I got Bono's, uh, the, the lead singer of U2, I got his biography uh, called Surrender, and he he shares uh, this little this little exchange here, which I thought was interesting. When he was young, uh, he was uh, ran into this Gandhi quote, <clears throat> and playing off of that Gandhi quote, he wrote this lyric, and the lyric says, "I cannot change the world, but I can change the world in me." So that's what Bondo Bondo says. He's like. You know the the world's such a mess. These these problems of literacy and poverty, and but man, I can't do. But I can I can change me. Well, in U2's most recent album, Bono is now older, and he's had all the resources that a person could imagine. I mean, he's had access to the presidents. He's had access to hundreds of billions, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to the causes that he wants to address. And in their most recent album, he changed that lyric really slightly, but with huge effect. And this is what he changed it to. I can change the world, but I cannot change the world in me. And that's a guy who's recognizing that, yes, we can actually make a dent in malaria cases. Uh, We we can actually uh, make a dent in regard to providing AIDS uh, uh, medicine. But when I try to address me, When I try to address the mess that's going on in here, I can't, it's it's not about the government giving a hundred million dollar grant. It's bigger than that. It's not about mobilizing all these people. It's bigger than that. It's a problem that I actually can't address. All the resources in the world can't fill that void. And you have to admit that your problems are big. That, that, That is what Jesus is talking about when he says poor in spirit. Now remember, these statements are not a divine stamp of approval. They're not divine blessing. They are congratulatory statements that function as an invitation to that way of life. Jesus is pointing it out and inferring, like, that's, that's the way to go. That's the way to live. That's the flourishing life. Jesus is looking at the poor in spirit, and he is saying yes. Uh, I don't know if Scott Barry's here today, but apparently there's a phrase in, in, in Australia, eh, good on you, good on you. And it's like that's what Jesus is saying. He looks at the person with the poor in, who's poor in spirit and he's saying, "Good on you. Flourishing are you. Way to go. That is the flourishing life." In other words, Jesus, he's like, "Look at the person who is poor in spirit. You might not see it, but I am telling you that that is a flourishing person." How do you live like that? Well, One of the reasons, maybe the main reason that Jesus sees the poor in spirit as a flourishing life is because when you are poor in spirit, you are much more likely to realize something. When you get down that low, Jesus says, you won't believe what you'll find. And that's where the second half comes in. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we get that low, when we get that poor in spirit, we'll be shocked at what we see. We'll realize that our true poverty of spirit, down there we are most likely to see Jesus. That's the position. We are most likely to run into Jesus. Look, in in Isaiah chapter 66, so Isaiah, uh, the the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, uh, they are really playing off of Isaiah. Uh, It's pretty clear that Jesus liked Isaiah, and he he benefited and used Isaiah's language a a lot over the course of his life. But in Isaiah 66, um, the prophet says, he, he indicates this, that it's the humble that God lifts up. Jesus is playing off of that right here. Later in the New Testament, both James and Peter take that same language and says this, God puts down the, the proud, but he lifts up the humble. You know, I spend my whole life trying not to be humbled, trying not to be lowly. And yet the Bible says, guess who's down there? Guess who meets you down there? Like that's Jesus's jam. When, you, when you're willing to get that low, you'll be shocked at what you find. You are most likely to meet Jesus down there. Now, first, what, what, what is the kingdom of God? What, what is the kingdom of heaven? It says that you know the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So, so there's there, there's some theological things that we could get into with the kingdom of heaven, but let me, let me say what I think is the simplest. The Jewish people had a little funky thing with saying the name God or saying the name Yahweh. And they thought it was, some thought it was dishonoring to say it out loud. And so sometimes they used kingdom of heaven to just avoid saying the, the term kingdom of God. And so there's more to it than that, but kingdom of heaven kind of uh, made, came, came to prominence. It's, it's talking about the same, the same reality. What, what is the kingdom of God? A good definition of the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And throughout the Old Testament, you see these little glimmers where, oh man, like, is this coming together? Like, is this going to happen? Is this, is this going to happen in full? And as you know, Israel has all kinds of problems uh, keeping their end of the bargain and, and living in faithful ways. Um, but this picture, this vision, is something that had been put in front of the people of God. And by the time Jesus preaches this sermon that's recorded here in Matthew chapter 5, they've been longing for this kingdom to come in full, and they've been longing for it for over a 1,000 years. They, have been, they can't wait for this thing to show up. And so the average Jewish person is longing for the kingdom of God. Now, they didn't understand a lot of how it was going to be brought. They obviously misunderstood some things about the Messiah, which it's, it's kind of understandable that they did, but they, they missed that. And so, but they've been longing for it. Matthew chapter 4 talks about the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5 talks about the kingdom. Throughout the rest of the gospel, Matthew is constantly kind of sprinkling kingdom language into his gospel. He's also revealing that not only is the kingdom coming, but that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. That Jesus is going to be the one who rules over this kingdom. And so, as Jesus begins to describe what he means in Matthew chapter 4 when he says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's unpacking that throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. Part of what he's telling us is this there's a kingdom that's coming, and I'm the king. You want to be part of it? You want to be part of that kingdom? And the message of Jesus is this invitation into his kingdom, and I find it often to be quite a helpful thing to remind myself that part of what Jesus is doing is saying this, hey, it's kind of like a, you know, we call the gospel good news because it's a declaration. Jesus is saying that kingdom is coming. It's not maybe, It's not maybe that's where the world is headed. It is absolutely where the world is headed. And so Jesus is saying, because that's the kingdom that's coming, it would be good for you to align your life to this new kingdom. It would be right for you to prepare for this future coming king, who is Jesus himself. And so throughout Jesus' teaching and his instruction, he has that going on. It's kind of like that's running in the background of like, what does it look like to be ready for this kingdom to show up. And so who does King Jesus say gets this kingdom? Who's, who's the people in the kingdom? Well if the place is gonna be this earth remade and if the, the ruler, the ruler himself is Jesus, who, who are the people? Well beggars. Be- beggars is what it seems to indicate, right? I mean, it says the kingdom is theirs, the poor in spirit. But you might have a really good question, and that is, didn't I just say that we're all poor in spirit? Didn't I just say that we are, in a sense, we're all beggars? And the answer is yes. So then what do you, does everybody get the kingdom? Is everybody in? What does Jesus mean? Well, if we hop out of the Gospel of Matthew and hop into the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, there is, it's a long chapter, but there's something pretty phenomenal. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitudes with five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds thousands of people with just these things, just five loaves of bread and two fish, and it's an incredible miracle, and there's actually leftovers. He feeds them all, and there's, there's food left over. Well, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, hear about what happened, and so later in the chapter, they come find Jesus and they want to know, what, what, what are you talking about here? What, what's, what's going on with this, this bread? What's going on with this feeding of the multitude? Um, and they say, you know, we, we heard this trick before, like Moses, you know, God used Moses to feed the people in the wilderness. And so like, like, hook us up. Like, that sounds like, you know, bread from heaven sounds like a good idea. Why, can, you know, we, we'd like to get in on that. So give us the bread that Moses gave the Israelites back in the desert. This is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter, or John chapter 6, verse 32. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the religious leaders say back, Sir, give us this bread. Jesus says to them, I am the bread. It's me. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Now, you, you know what happens in the following verses? They don't buy it. They don't believe him. They, they reject that invitation. Jesus says, you're after manna. You're after this physical bread that came down from heaven that went that expired in one day, went rotten in one day. You, you want the bread that I fed the multitudes on the mountainside that goes bad. It doesn't last. It's good for one meal. I'm telling you that the bread you need is me. And you know what? They reject it. They don't believe him. And by the end of Matthew, or John chapter 6, people are leaving in droves. They are leaving Jesus in droves. Uh, Ironically, it's John 6, chapter 6, verse 66. So if you like the number 666, like in John 666, it says people leave Jesus like crazy the multitudes take off. And it's like, it's a good example of the fact that they wanted Jesus' stuff, but they didn't want Jesus. You see, they weren't displaying true poverty of spirit. And maybe you aren't either. Maybe I'm not either. Do do you just want Jesus' stuff and not Jesus, the bread of life himself? It won't work out because he is actually what you need. See, the Bible is telling us that we are all spiritually starving and that Jesus is the bread that our souls have longed for our whole lives, whether we know it or not. He wants to fill us. He wants to rescue us. But you've got to get low enough to realize that. So who does King Jesus say gets the kingdom? Beggars who run to Jesus. We're all beggars, but the invitation is to run to Jesus, the true bread of life, the only one who can actually fill you. That's the truly poor in spirit. You know, This phrase, uh, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, kind of functions as a bookend to the Beatitudes. If you hop down to verse 10, you see that it's repeated again, it, kind of at the end. And a lot of commentators see those as bookends or an inclusio, where, where there's a... Uh, Uh, like what what the point is is that it starts with this idea that theirs is the kingdom and it ends with this idea that theirs is the kingdom and the point that Jesus is making is this whole package is the kind of people that run to me That, that all of these beatitudes that when 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 you're living your life that way when you're poor in spirit you're in the best condition to run to me to see me to taste the bread of life the door to true happiness is very low and it is cross-shaped." Jonathan Pennington said. You see it? When you walk in the way of humility, when you admit that you need help and that your problems are too big for you to handle, then you know what you naturally start to do? You start to look for help. If you don't think your problems are very big, you're not going to be looking for a very big savior. You're not going to be looking for a very, very big solution. But the poor in spirit are staring directly into the reality that their problems are way bigger than they can solve. I mean, have you ever wondered why the gospel spreads so much among women and children, among slaves and the poor, among the sick and the immigrants? Have you ever wondered in our culture why it is that prisoners and people with terminal uh, terminal diagnoses are often so open to the gospel? You can come up with whatever whatever reasons you want, but Jesus says that's actually, those are flourishing trees. Those are people who are poor in spirit. They've actually faced the reality of their need, and it's the most likely place in the world to find Jesus. All you need is need, but most people don't have it. This life that Jesus offers is free, and all you have to do is come So the good news is that the kingdom can be yours as long as it's not too far beneath you. You're not too good to get low as long as you recognize that you have need to. And when you do, Jesus will fill your soul. The bread of life. It's not that your life becomes perfect or that your life becomes easy. It's that your life becomes full. That it's a, it's a flourishing life in the only way that matters. I'm running out of time. We only have two points today, so we're in good shape. Um, but I, I'm, getting, I'm getting tight on time. Uh, 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 somebody in our, our community group, Chris Millward, sent me uh, the, the, the video of the press conference from the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma softball uh, uh, team that won the NCAA championships. And you need to look that up, man. There are four, uh, four Oklahoma softball players, girls, um, who uh, are at the press conference with their coach? And um, if you don't know, Oklahoma's had this extended run now. They've won three national championships in a row, and they're getting asked questions of like, "How do you sustain it? How do you sustain the excellence? And your team is so joyful. Like, how do you how do you sustain the joy?" And to a girl, all four of them, just or maybe there's three, whatever. Uh, pastors exaggerate. <clears throat> Um, there's at least three, but every one of the girls at the, at, the, at the press conference, when they talk about how they're sustaining this success, it's all rooted in the fact that their hope has been put in Christ and that softball is no longer the most important thing in their life. That softball can't carry that kind of weight. The softball can't fill that kind of void that no matter how many national championships you win, you're just going to have to win another one and win another one and win another one. It's like eating bread that goes bad in one day. But they're saying, we found the bread of life that never goes bad. And they're sitting up there thrilled that they won another national championship. But that's not their joy. That's not their happiness. And if Jesus saw them, he would say, those, that, that's flourishing trees right there. But it's not because they won a national championship in, in softball. It's because their hope is in Christ. It's because they've recognized that their problems are bigger than they can solve. That they've turned all of that. And the Bible says he became poor and came here and lived among us. And then he actually went to the cross. And on the cross, he took all the sin of the world. And the Bible even says that he was forsaken by the father. He even lost that. He became that poor. Why? So that we could become rich in the only way that matters, so that he could win for us these eternal riches. This, this, the, the poor in spirit get low enough to see the beauty and the reality of Jesus, and what they receive is a flourishing full life in the person of Jesus. We are all beggars, no doubt, but listen, a Christian is a beggar who knows they're a beggar, but they've stumbled upon the bread. And now the invitation is for us to go tell other beggars where the bread is. Martin Luther said this 500 years ago. That's what Christians are. We're beggars who have found bread, and now we're telling other beggars where the bread's at. That's the invitation. That's the beauty of this, is the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we end our services with the Lord's table, and one of the elements is is a, a loaf of bread cut up into small pieces. I loved it when we used to rip off the, lo- the loaf, but we're post-COVID and here we are. So c- c- come up here and get the bread. When we had a loaf, I used to say things like, take a big chunk, rip off a big chunk of that and celebrate the reality that this bread is a picture of the better bread. It's a picture of the bread of life, the one who actually will satisfy and fill your soul. And so if you're a Christian, come up here and eat the bread. And if you're not a Christian, man, there's prayers in our bulletin. There'll be songs that we're going to sing. We, we invite you to take this time and to see, see, see what happens when you get low, when you realize this problem that sin has brought is bigger than you could ever solve, and that there's one who can. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this uh, beatitude, this invitation uh, to recognize our neediness, our, our, the, our poverty, our spiritual poverty. God, we, we, we have some problems, some in our life we think we can probably tackle, some in our life we think we're probably managing. But God, would you give us eyes to see that our, our, our truest problems, our deepest problems are way beyond our, our ability to address. We need help from the outside. All we need is need, but most of us don't have it. So God, would you break our hearts? Would you give us that, that, that lowly perspective? Would you bring us down to where we can see that the door to happiness, it's low and it's cross-shaped, but it brings flourishing and beauty. We thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.